I want to read this out of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 30. John writes, Jesus went on to do many more miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not even included in this book. But all that is recorded here is so that you will fully believe that Jesus is the anointed one, the Son of God, and that through your faith in him, you will experience, say, say that word experience, experience. How many of you know the definition of a pinch? Everybody know the definition of a pinch? Now pinch somebody. See, that's an experience. See, you go from, you go from the theoretical to the experiential. And so John wrote his gospel, and the primary purpose he wrote his gospel was that so that you will fully believe. It's become... Um, The idea is to believe, not to doubt. Everybody aware of that? And um, so John wrote this gospel. He wrote so that we might fully believe that Jesus is the anointed one, the Son of God, and that through your faith in him you will, what? Experience eternal life by the power of his name. So... My uh, my real purpose this morning is to help you believe in Jesus in a way that goes from factual to experiential. And um, am I fumbling around here? Is my slide up here? Okay, let's do this. Let's... Um, oh, no. I would love to blame this on someone, but it seems like I'm doing it to myself. Let's just go ahead and have communion and no. <laughs> Let's read Mark 2. I'm sorry. <laughs> I got emotional earlier today, you know, and whenever the Lord comes around, it messes up my brain. I've become less proficient than I am before, which should make everybody pretty nervous. But how many of you felt the presence, the experiential presence of Jesus here today? He really, he really is here. You know, that's, that's not just a concept or an idea. It's a reality that um, we can experience eternal life by the power of his name. And so let's read this um, Let's read this slide together, Mark eight twenty seven through 30. Now, Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him, which is sort of strange. But um, And so we have, these, we have these two questions today that I, I want us to consider about Jesus. Who do men say that I am? That's the question he's asking. And I believe he really is asking that today. Who do men say that I am? And who do you say that I am? That's what it really, really does come down to. And so I looked, um, I looked through history to see what famous people said about Jesus. And then, um, I looked at, uh, what Peter said and what Paul said and what John the Baptist said. And then I'm going to tell you what I have to say. But it's all, all to bring you to the point um, where you 
can determine what you have to say about him because that's where the experience really becomes real. It's when you have faith in his name. And so what did Napoleon say about Jesus Christ? I think this is interesting. This is what he said. He said, I know men, and I'll tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour millions of men would die for him. That was Napoleon. What did Albert Einstein say about Jesus Christ? He said, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. What about Leo Tolstoy? He was um, really a genius Russian author. Here's what he said. For 35 years of my life, I was in the proper acceptation of the word a nihilist. Now, a nihilist is a person who believes life is meaningless and he rejects all religious and moral principles. So he says for the first 35 years of his life, he was a nihilist, a man who believed in nothing. Five years ago, my faith came to me. I believed in the doctrine of Jesus Christ, and my whole life underwent a sudden transformation. Life and death ceased to be evil. Instead of despair, I tasted joy and happiness that death could not take away. That's Leo Tolstoy. Well, what did Peter Larson say about Jesus? I couldn't even find out who he was, frankly. But the thing he said really, really spoke to me. But he had something to say. You know, that's the deal. What the heart man believes unto righteousness and the mouth confession is made. So you don't believe something until you talk about it. And until you talk about it, what you believe doesn't really manifest. That's the biblical principle. But what did Peter Larson say? Here's what he said. Despite our efforts to keep him out, God intrudes. The life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. Jesus entered our world through a door marked no entrance and left through a door marked no exit. That's pretty good. What did H.G. Wells say about Jesus? He wrote War of the Worlds. He was a British author. He said, I'm an historian. I'm not a believer. So he didn't believe. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. H.G. Wells. James C. Heffley, here again, he's in the Peter Larson category. (laughs) And I'm going to read one by a man named Unknown, and I could not find him either. (laughs) But James C. Heffley writes, Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30, and then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. I think he did. Jerusalem was bigger than this guy's giving him credit for. Nevertheless, he never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did go to Egypt. I don't know how far that was. Anyway, just trying to be honest here. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. 
His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had uh, on earth while he was dying, and that was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a barred grave through the pity of a friend. Do you know why they used a barred grave? They knew he wasn't going to need it long. So, I came up with that. James Heffley did not come up with that. I did. Such was his human life. He rises from the dead. Now 20 wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I'm within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon the earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. That's really good. Here's the unknown author. Buddha never claimed to be God. Moses never claimed to be Jehovah. Muhammad never claimed to be Allah. Yet Jesus claimed to be the true and living God. Buddha simply said, I'm a teacher in search of the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Muhammad said, uh, Confucius said, I never claimed to be holy. Jesus said, who can fix me of sin? Muhammad said, unless God throws his cloak of mercy over me, I have no hope. Jesus said, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. It's pretty powerful. How many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis? Yeah, great British, um, really, philosopher. Here's what he wrote. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So that's C.S. Lewis. Really, really powerful words here. Um. I was really struck by reading uh, in, in, in um, John chapter 9 about the, the man who was born blind and Jesus healed him. How many of you, let's do it this, how many of you are not familiar with that story? And I'll give you a little bit more background. A couple of you aren't familiar. Well, the basic, um, well, let me read it to you. Wouldn't that be easy? As Jesus walked down the street, he noticed a man born a man blind from birth, and his disciples ask him, Teacher, whose sin caused this guy's blindness, his own or the sin of his parents? Jesus basically said, Neither one. I mean, after all, how could you have sinned before you were born? That'd be pretty difficult, right? Okay, moving right along. So, Jesus comes to this man, and it says this, Then Jesus spat on the ground and made some clay with his saliva, Then he anointed the blind man's eyes with the clay, and he said to the blind man, Now, go and wash the clay from your eyes in the ritual pool of Siloam. So he went and washed his face, and as he came back, he could see for the first time in his life. This caused quite a stir among the people of the neighborhood, for they noticed the blind beggar was now seeing. They began to say to one another, Isn't this the blind man? who once sat and begged. Some said, no, it can't be him. Others said, but it looks just like him. It has to be him. All the while, the man kept insisting, I am the man who was blind. Finally, they asked him, what has happened to you? Here his answer lies. I met the man named Jesus. One of the things that has has um, 
struck me is how um, Christianity, uh, as when you're talking about religion, how 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 can I say this? I think there's come a huge disconnect in the church between individuals and the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus. Because the church is supposed to be the place, it's it's not even a place, it's a people group. It's a people group. Now, people need places to be together, but 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 obviously the building is not the church. It's just the church is flesh and blood people, but it's particular people. It's flesh and blood people who have met the person of Jesus, not signed a creed, not raised their hand and answered some catechismic. That almost sounds like cataclysmic, but a question from the catechism or a doctrinal um, set of set of rules. But it's people who have met the person of Jesus Christ. Mahatma Gandhi said something interesting. He said, Christ I like, Christianity I don't. Well, I'm sort of in the Mahatma Gandhi category myself. And I think when a people are more connected to an institution or a movement or a concept or some some kind of ideology as opposed to individuals who are connected to this person. Everything begins to disintegrate and fall apart. And people do things to each other they shouldn't really do. You know, it's like Facebook. On Facebook, people would people would people say stuff to one another that they wouldn't dare say face to face. It ought to be called behind your back book. <laughs> you heard it here first. Well, see, if you really knew Jesus Himself was standing with you, you would not say and treat people some of the ways we can we can treat people. But we lose the reality of that awareness. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Come on. Come on. Well, what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? In um, John 1.29, when John saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. And that's the whole understanding of Passover weekend or resurrection weekend because Jesus was resurrected during the Jewish celebration of Passover. And the wonderful thing was Jesus was the literal Passover lamb, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world that the Jews had been told about for hundreds and hundreds, yea, even thousands of years, all of it pointing to this one person, the true Passover lamb, the one who was worthy by his life lived accurately and righteously to die as an innocent man on behalf of guilty men. The Passover lamb, the true lamb of God, that's who Jesus is. And so when we celebrate Passover, we're celebrating the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. He was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What else did John the Baptist say about Jesus? He said, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. What did Paul the Apostle say about Jesus? He said this, God in this last days has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Jesus has inherited Everything, the universe, everything is absolutely part of his inheritance because he made it all. Creation was not just made by Big Bang. Who was, who was the Big Banger? I mean, who was behind all? I read this thing about Stephen Hawking, you know. 
Oops. I read this thing about Stephen Hawking who died recently as a genius, and here's how he concluded everything's going to end. All the stars are going to burn out, and it's going to go black, and that'll be in everything. That's a, that, how smart can you be and have that outlook on the future? But Jesus created all things. That per, when you meet Jesus by faith, that spirit that touches you and energizes you and gives you new life is the same exact spirit that created everything. You have to be crazy to be a Christian, to believe this stuff. How could something so bizarre, how could something so, what a crazy bunch of stuff to believe. How, how could it get 300 people to come sit in here and listen on a Sunday morning? It's because of the reality of the living person of Christ Jesus who has touched lives down through the ages like Leo Tolstoy, who for thirst, verse 35 years of his genius life, he was depressed and had nothing to live for until he believed, he says, the doctrine of Jesus Christ and suddenly life took on meaning. Who wants to be a critic and who wants to be a doubter and who wants to be um, a cynic when all of those people get darker and darker and grow more and more depressed? I don't want to buy into that. I know when I'm not happy, I've got a faulty belief structure working on me somewhere. That's part of my baseline concept. Anyway, Paul said Jesus was the one that was the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person who upheld all things by the word of his power. Man, we just go on and on. What did John the Apostle say about Jesus? He said he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. That Jesus by his spirit is here this morning. What else did John say? He said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Here's one of the things I've recognized over the years. I can't make someone... Believe in Jesus. I really can't. I would like to. But I can't. Something mystical happens. I'm serious. Something, something mystical happens when people go from death to life. I can't explain it. I really can't. I mean, I could give you doctrine, but I couldn't really explain what happens when a person goes from not believing to believing, how do they cross that divide? I don't know. I don't know. I think it has to be something God really helps them do. What did Nathaniel say about Jesus? And he was probably the very first person to say this. He said, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Nathaniel had that declaration he made about Jesus. What did Jesus say about himself? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, there, there is an exclusivity in Christianity. Christianity is not equal to Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Confucianism, etc., etc. There's an exclusivity to it that all boils down to who each individual says about Jesus. Here's what Jesus says about himself. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes unto the Father. No one but by me. What else did Jesus say? He said, I am. Say, I am. 
The I am understanding comes out of the book of Moses. When God, I just love that story where, where Moses is 80 years old. He's already failed miserably. He's in the, he's, uh, spent the last 40 years of his life as a shepherd in a wilderness. And then on one day, he runs into a burning bush that begins to talk to him. And it happens that God was in that bush. Don't you love that? I really love that. Something about that just intrigues me, a burning bush. I like the spiritual part of the Bible. How many of you like the supernatural parts of the Bible? I really do. You should. I do. Who does? I do. Come on. Anyway. So God, God is speaking to Moses out of a blackberry bush. That's what they believe that was, a sticker bush. Isn't it, you know, if you had a choice to live anywhere in the world, would you pick a sticker bush? So God is speaking to Moses and basically tells Moses, you know those two million Jewish relatives of yours that are in Egypt, I want you to go tell Pharaoh to let them go and we're going to go do something brand new. And Moses says, well, they're going to ask me, why I'm authorized to do this. And the Lord says, well, tell them I am sent you. And so God called himself I am, the self-existent one. Y-H-W-H is Yahweh or Jehovah, Yahweh. Uh, that's the way they try to pronounce his name. But nevertheless, Jesus would say on a number of occasions, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the door. Say that one phrase with me. I am the door. You noticed after Jesus' resurrection, every time he showed up, he didn't come through a door. He either appeared or he came through the wall. Why? He is the door. He doesn't need a door. We have a God that doesn't need anything to do anything, anytime, anywhere. That's who Jesus really is. He doesn't need our help. We think he does. He's the door. He doesn't need to use the door. I am the true vine. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas came and betrayed Jesus and there was a, I don't know, there could have been as many as 600 soldiers there. And they said to Jesus, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And what did he reply? I am. And it says everyone in the garden fell down. I loved Andy. Uh, when, when were you reading that book? Uh, you were reading uh, before the service about all the Christians that came out of the grave when Jesus was resurrected and walked the streets of Jerusalem and appeared to people. And uh, is that phenomenal? Is that phenomenal? This is a supernatural book, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> there are inexplicable things in here. There is no way to fully explain God. If you could explain God, you would be smarter than God. It's the, these things are, but I love this. So Jesus says, I am. What he was saying was he was identifying himself as the same person that spoke to Moses out of that burning bush. And when he spoke at the level of authority, he wanted to speak at it knocked down six hundred soldiers. And then when they got up, Peter takes out his sword and whacks off the high priest servant's ear. And Jesus said, Jesus puts his ear back. And he simply says, listen, if I wanted to get out of this, I'd have no trouble. Listen, if the man can say two words and knock 600 people down. <clears throat> He said, I could call on the angels of heaven and they would come rescue me from this whole whole mess. But he didn't do that because he had his eyes on dying. Who else is Jesus? He's Emmanuel, God with us. 
He's the king. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the holy one of God. He's the alpha and omega. That's the beginning and the end. He's Christ the Lord. He's the savior. He's the author of life. He's the indescribable gift. He's him who knew no sin. Now, our time's pretty good. Everybody okay? Who do I say Jesus is? Well, I'm sure you have an idea by now. But I can remember in um, 1972, I think it was. No, 1971. I was in college. I had a girlfriend that was still in high school. And when I was home for the holidays, Christmas holidays, she asked me to go to an evangelistic rally at West Mecklenburg High School. You, you realize you used to be able to preach the gospel in uh, high school auditoriums in Charlotte back in the 70s. And um, I went, I was on a city championship baseball team, and so I went with my girlfriend, her best friend, and another guy was on the same baseball team with me. And um, it was just the year after I left high school, and so um, this evangelist is preaching, and he has an altar call. I'd never seen an altar call. I grew up in Presbyterian church, and we didn't have them. But something or someone was so touching me, I went up. And I can't, I don't, you know, I can't explain what happened. I can give you words. But I was drawn to just go up there in response to an altar call about believing in Jesus. I grew up in church all my life. And when I got up there, the only way I can put it is the power of God touched me so profoundly that I found myself on the floor weeping uncontrollably, which was very embarrassing. I never saw my old baseball pal and his girlfriend again from that day forward. I've never seen him again. They were so embarrassed, they left early. All I can say is through that experience, I met Jesus. I had something so deeply profound happen to me that I knew I had met Jesus. I hadn't met a church. I hadn't, I'd met Jesus. And I went home and I told my mom and dad, who took me to church all my life, guess what happened to me tonight? I can remember they were laying in bed reading the Charlotte Observer. And I came in and I sat down on that same footstool we've got in our house right now, or that chair. Anyway. And I said, guess what happened to me? I met Jesus tonight. And they, uh, they didn't get it. They, I didn't get it. I was a lunatic without an asylum for about two years. <laughs> and I was still a very unholy person by and large. Do you understand what I mean? Just because you meet Jesus, it says you're a new creature, but man, getting used to being other than you were is hard. And so when I find out people, backsliders don't bother me at all. I think almost everybody really backslides at one time or another. They just won't admit to it. But you have to work this out. Man, when you get touched by God, everything doesn't just transform and you're on easy street, but he's real. Your life may still be messy, but he's real. Things may not work the way you expect them to, but he's a real person and he really is there and he really did come and you really did meet him and you can't explain it and your friends think you're crazy and they'll walk away from you or some of them won't or however that works, but he's real. I met the real person. November the 27th, that's John Mark's birthday, on his 22nd birthday, this how I remember the night this happened. I think that would be 2001. Is that right? 79, 89, 99. Anyway, 2000, let's just say it was. 
I um, I was in a season at night around four in the morning where I would wake up, and I did not want to be awake, but I decided since I was awake, I would pray. And so for several weeks, I found myself praying this way. Jesus, I'm, I'm so sorry for the way you were treated when you came. Now, you know, that doesn't make any sense unless you really know him, right? I mean, doesn't it bother you when your friends go through something hard? And I just actually, um, I try to spend every Good Friday reading all four gospel accounts of the sufferings of Jesus just to remember what he went through. But on that night, I, and, and I couldn't understand why I was doing that, but I was just praying that way. Lord, I'm so sorry for the way you were treated when you came. Man, they called you a bastard. They made fun of your mother. She said she was, had you as an illegitimate child. I know the Bible says you came into your own and your own received you not. I remember the record of them spitting on you, slapping you, mocking you, all the cruelty that happened during the time he was crucified. And as I was praying that, suddenly I was caught into a vision and I was watching Jesus being scourged. Now, the idea of the scourging, Pontius Pilate wanted to release Jesus and let Barabbas die, and people cried out and cried out, and so they released Barabbas, and they crucified Jesus. But before they crucified him, they scourged him. And what that means was if they were going to crucify you, they would beat you within an inch of your life to begin with, because the Roman and the Roman soldiers did that because the Roman soldiers didn't want to spend two days out there waiting for you to die on the cross. They were, they were like tuning you up, for lack of a better way to put it. They were weakening you so you would die quicker so they could get off work and go. It's really the way that was working. But I watched them. First of all, they tied his wrist with leather, like leather straps and they tied those leather straps to an iron ring that was in a, it was either in a brick wall or in a brick post that came up out of the floor. I couldn't remember exactly, but, and then they took that cat of nine tails and the cat of nine tails is a whip with a handle that has nine straps of leather on it and embedded in that leather is glass or metal. And they would hit you across the back and then jerk it off. And what would happen is it would wrap all the way around your back and grab and just rip your flesh all the way off. And depending on how much they would do it, some men's intestines would fall out. And I watched this scourging. And every time they hit Jesus, he would leave his feet in agony like they were beating some kind of a wild animal. And I started weeping. I got real emotional because this thing was so real. I mean, you talk about the passion of the Christ. That movie was nothing like what I was living and watching. And the one common thought, and I believe it was God's thought, was this. I must have a place. And after that was over and I woke up the next morning, I was I was really very affected by it. I mean, I can talk about it now and get pretty emotional. It suddenly dawned on me, Jesus, why would you show me yourself like in your most humiliating, vulnerable moment? How many of you like to tell everybody about the worst thing that ever happened in your life and give a blow-by-blow description of it? Of course not. I said, why would you do that? Well, you know, I continued to have this idea. I must have a place. That was the price Jesus was beginning to pay so that God could dwell among men at a much higher level. I must have a place. See, God wants us more than we want him. 
And then he was also saying, aren't friends real friends when they're vulnerable with each other and they're willing to talk to each other about their worst moments and their deepest needs and desires? See, Jesus said, I call you no longer servants, but I call you friends. Having God as a friend is one of his objects or one of his things he wants. People talk about prayer, talk to God, talk to God. He wants to talk to you. He has things to tell you. And in and the 45 years I've been saved, anything God has ever said to me has never been rash or harsh or angry or mean. That's a voice opposing his God. But it's not who he is. It's not who he is. <clears throat> okay, so 2001, let's skip forward and I'll tie this up and um, I'll invite Andy to come and we'll navigate to communion. Um, if we skip another decade forward, I was in Florida and I was uh, preaching for a friend of mine in the Fort Lauderdale area and I got up Sunday morning before church and went downstairs in the hotel to eat. And when I sat down at my table and had my food, I sat down by myself, but I felt my father, who had been dead for 20 years by then, I felt my father sitting across from me looking at me, which was a very, very strange thing to feel. I like felt like I was sitting there in my underwear in public because so I felt naked. I mean, I, he was looking at me and I was thinking, what, number one, is this real? Number two, if it is, why is he here? And number three, I must have really done something wrong. And so my dad looked at me and he said, what are you going to do about your mama? And I didn't say anything to him. I just thought I didn't know she needed anything. So I preached, I went home, and the next morning I went up to see my mom, and I realized she was, I hadn't noticed it, but I began to recognize the um, beginning stages of dementia. And so I would go up there. My day off then, I was at Morningstar preaching. My day off was Monday, so I think for about three years, every Monday I would go see my mom. And she would say things like, why don't you ever come see me? I said, I'm coming every week. No, you don't. I really do. No, you don't. I said, please call me a liar. I do. And then she would introduce me as my brother. And I said one time, Mom, if you introduce me as my brother, I'm not even getting credit for the times I really am here. <laughs> it's got to change. <laughs> I at least need some credit for this. But over those three years, she just, she was... And when she was in her right mind, she was a beautiful, gosh, wasn't she a beautiful woman, Donna? And she had like this amazing personality and she had this striking, regal way, sort of like me, this striking, regal way about her. She really should have had a daughter to carry on those genes, frankly. I mean, she was a really beautiful woman and tall and blonde and striking. But I watched her just disintegrate. And she was like one of the first people to move into this community she lived in up there. And everybody loved her. But during those three years, people stopped having anything to do with her because she got so cranky and negative and sort of mean-spirited. And then she died. And be frank, I was glad she had died because she was just living such a very difficult life. And, but when she died, I had this real bad image of her inside now. I don't even know what I'm talking about. I didn't see her as who she really was. I saw her as what she became when she deteriorated. And I thought, well, you know, there's really nothing you can do about that. You just got to grow up. It's what happens. Just move on. I never, I never thought much more about it than that. Well, a number of years ago, I started 
taking Good Friday and I would go through, like I mentioned earlier, I would go through all of the specific verses about the sufferings of Jesus up to the cross. And I was sitting in a public place several years ago and as I began to read about how he was had suffered so, the presence of the Lord came in on me with such a strength, I was about to break down and weep. And I thought, I do not want to do that here. I'm going to be embarrassed. So I just said to the Lord, Lord, if, if you don't back up a little bit here, I'm going to have to go home. I mean, I'm just being honest. If you don't, yeah. And suddenly the Lord spoke to me. See, I was thinking about his sufferings. The presence came. And suddenly he spoke to me. He said, do you remember that time in Florida when you sat across the table and your, your father came to you and told you to look after your mom? And I said, yes. The Lord said, that was me sitting across the table from you that day. And when he did, instantly that terrible image of my mother completely left me and I no longer see her. I see her as that blonde, beautiful, I've got wedding pictures woman. Well, Robin, what are you talking about? I'm talking about this real person named Jesus and the kind of things he'll do. And it struck me when I was concerned about his terrible terrible suffering, he was concerned about my little momentary difficulty with the vision I had of my mother. But you know what that really speaks of? It speaks of what it is to meet Jesus the real way. Because until you can see him as who he really is, he won't affect you at the profoundest level, he wants to really touch you. If you just see him as a historical figure, well, what's Abraham Lincoln done for you lately? I mean, the emancipation, that's amazing. But I mean, personally, or what's, when is the last time Leo, Tol, Leo Tolstoy or C.S. Lewis came to your house and healed you? But if you see Jesus as Savior, he'll save you. If you see him as healer, he can heal you. If you see him as deliverer, he will deliver you. Do you know why Jesus came? Jesus came to deliver people from what they deserve. That's how good he is. Well, I'm going to ask um, I'm going to ask Andy to come up now. God bless you guys and happy Resurrection Day. You feeling better? We're going to take the Lord's Supper together now. Um, if I could get my communion service to come up and get ready. So we, we have six stations up front here. Our, our hope is if you're sitting over here, you'll come up to this this area over here and then, you know. The middle folks, you can choose. Um, if if you're if you prefer gluten free and grape juice, we have this is real. This this these ladies right here can serve you gluten free this morning. The rest is is gluten filled and wine. So if you prefer juice and gluten free, this is right up front here. <clears throat> the thing that I love about communion is I don't. I don't quite understand it all the way, 
but there's something about the commonness of it that is signifying our everyday being in Christ and him being in us. When you really when you think about this meal that we're about to take together, how it was prepared was really so boring. I I drove to Food Lion and I bought generic bread and honestly low-level wine and Welch's grape juice. I paid for it with my credit card. They put it into plastic bags. And then I watched Jumanji with my kids last night. And, and I sat there sawing up the bread while I was watching Jumanji with my kids. And I can't think of a better description of what it means to be with the Lord in our everyday lives. And Robin said something at the beginning of his message that really hit me really hard. He said, the goal is to believe not to doubt. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. You don't really hear that so much anymore. The things that are being celebrated that I'm hearing the most are crises of faith and uncertainty and doubt. And all these things are being elevated. And the truth is, is that when you're walking through your life, you will wrestle with some of those things. There's no getting away with that. But Jesus said it this way. Don't be afraid. Only believe. So sometimes we don't know what to do and we can just lean on the words of Jesus. Do not fear, just believe. You don't have to be smart to do that. You just have to enter into the rest of Jesus. And that's what we're going to do this morning when we're taking communion. We're going to enter into the rest of Jesus. Amen. Why don't you stand together? And I'm going to read this, and when I'm done reading it, you can just come forward with your family, and John, Mark, and Sarah are going to sing a song over us. And then go back to your chairs, and then um, once we're all done taking the Lord's Supper together, we'll, we'll pray and dismiss for Easter lunch. All right. As we gather around this table, we remember and we proclaim Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. There is nothing to fear and everything to gain. So we gather here to remember and proclaim. Every footstep tells the story. As the people join the feast, we remember his body, blood and body broken for you and me. One step and we remember. The other we proclaim his death until he comes. Oh, he is coming back. He is coming back again. Every time we break this bread, every time we drink this wine, we remember, we proclaim his death until he comes again. We remember and proclaim Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ is coming again. And now we join with our friends and our family in this room our neighbors together to celebrate again around this table. This feast is a battle that we wage against the night. This joy is just a shadow of the resurrection life. Because every time we break this bread, every time we drink this wine, we remember, we proclaim his death until he comes again. Come forward.